Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Europe. Today is Sunday, August 16th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, I have Sven Longshank here with me. And last Saturday, I had, on, on, on our Saturday night program, I had done a presentation on the Edict of Expulsion of the Jews from England in 1290. And as I presented it, seeing Sven Shanks in the chat room listening, I had indeed regretted not saving the topic for a Sunday or two with him. And even though it wouldn't really fit in with this series that we are doing now on English traders, because um, Edward I was certainly more of an English hero, it still would have been a good topic to do with Sven. And I'm sure that he, here on this program, has a few things to say about the period from William of Normandy when the Jews were first admitted into England. Hello, Sam. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Bill. Pleasure, Yahweh. Um, yeah, yeah last week, um, the, the program that we did, I think it, in looking at the comments section, there was a fair bit of confusion from people because we were talking about uh, traitors. And we were talking about traitors in Britain before the Norman invasion. And this is before there were any Jews in Britain. So the traitors that we were talking about were ones that people had never even heard of before. And then they would suggest, you know, that the biggest traitor of all was Oliver Cromwell, which we're going to look at today, and, uh, and uh, William of Orange, another traitor which we might get to today. And they all led on after um, William the Norman who was also called William the Bastard. And a lot of people ask, why Why is he called William the Bastard? Was he a mulatto? He wasn't a mulatto. He was the son of Duke Robert of Normandy and Harleen, who was the daughter of a tanner in Falaise. So because his mother wasn't of royal extraction, right. then he was known as William the Bastard. Right. Which but, makes you think, look, what about today with Princess Kate, or whatever her name is, that um, uh, Princess William married to? Let, let me interject something so that people understand the use of the term bastard um, historically, if you don't mind. A bastard is somebody of mixed race, there's no doubt. But to the noble classes of not only Europe, but also Asia and the Near East, going back, wow, as far as I could remember, in, in history, in, in recorded history. Uh, I mean, this is evident in the histories of the Greeks and the Persians, and, and probably even before them, but I know it from Persian history. A bastard was also a child born of a mother who was not of the nobility. So it, it could, the term could describe people of mixed race, and the Greeks used the term bastard to describe people born of two different tribes, but they also used the term bastard 
in in the sense of the the nobility of the kings and and the princes of the various nations to describe a child born of a mother who was not the of, of the noble class and whose children could not therefore inherit the the um the, the government of the kingdom that's all I'll say so so in that sense William is a bastard Oh yeah, and in that sense, this new one that they've got, it's Prince George that they're making all this fuss of. Yeah, yeah that's Prince George the bastard, as well. I mean, this, this is this is the royal law, and yet they've, you know, they've just allowed him to marry this, this woman, ain't this, this common woman, and uh, according to all the original laws of monarchy and royalty, that should not have been allowed. So, you know, it just shows you the way that they've changed all these laws, which were traditional laws that go back thousands of years, and they, they just changed them at the top of a hat without even, you know, without even a mention of, of the fact that he is George the Bastard, this, this prince. So I don't think that bodes well for Britain, to be honest. It was it's in King George who actually abdicated simply because he married a commoner, right? Yeah. Yeah, they forced him to, and that that was only in the last century. So uh, you know, things are really changing at, at a fast pace. The way they just Jewish modernist corruption of Western civilization with pop culture. That's exactly what that is, and we see that degradation in a hundred years. We see that rapid degradation of the values of our society. And just to to bring it back to William Norman or William the Bastard Usurper, and he was a real major trader because up till that time there, there were no Jews in Britain. There had never been any Jews in Britain. Um, if you look at uh, what Alfred the, the Great, if it, I was looking at the introductions because he, he translated the Psalter and before every one of the Psalms he, he writes a little introduction and in just about every one of them it's got something negative written about the Jews in it. Uh, also, in the, in the life of Alfred the Great, um, it compares some skullduggery as as behaving as a Jew would. So there was that Britain was very anti-Jew, you know, we, and uh, they've been taught that the, that the Jews were devils, and that that was what the church taught. And there were no Jews in Britain. There was no usury in in Britain at all. There were laws against usury. If anyone um, uh, was caught. Uh, being a usurer, then they would forfeit everything that they had at, at their death. That would go to the king, and then the king would redistribute it. He, you know, he'd redistribute that to the poor, basically. And uh, this is one of the things I learned from your program last week, Bill, was from that from that law, once um, uh, William the Norman came in with his Jews, he, he, they kept that law, but then they applied it to the Jews so that the king could then take all the money that the Jews had amassed through their usury, the king could then take that at the end of it. And that was his incentive to actually have the Jews in in the country itself. This is one of the incentives for um, William Norman to bring these Jews with him into Britain. He didn't just bring the Jews in, he replaced all of the clergy, he he changed the laws to um, Roman law. Still had our British traditions, but he sort of added Roman law to it as well. And introduced these uh, papal courts that they had. They, even, though, even though he brought the Jews into England, the Jews never actually got as far as Wales until the 18th century. So when um, 
Edward I actually got rid of the Jews. The year that he got rid of the Jews in was the same year that um, he conquered Wales. And up until that time, obviously, he hadn't conquered Wales. No Jews had actually entered Wales. And there's no record of there actually being any Jews in, in Wales until the 18th century, which um, I didn't realise until I was sort of looking into this today. It's a good bit of history for where I'm living. It's only had Jews for the last, the last two, two centuries. But these, these Jews that were the, the king's property, they had um, lots of privileges because of that. And they, they were resented by the people, really, really uh, resented. And looking into when you look into the research, when you're doing research into this, it tells you that there were lots of uprisings against these Jews and uh, there were lots of mobs against them. And it never tells you what it is that the Jews had actually done to inspire the mob to go after them. It never told you the crimes that they that they'd committed, Bill. You know, occasionally you can find out that they what they call the blood libel, the ritual sacrifice, but it makes out that that was a libel and it wasn't it wasn't real. But within 80 years of, of uh, William Norman bringing these Jews in, there was the first Jewish ritual sacrifice in Britain. That was William of William of Norwich, and then in 1170, we're talking about invasions and traitors that funded that. Um, we get the traders before the invasions, but in 1170, the Jews funded the invasion of Ireland. And this was the first invasion of Ireland. This chap called Strongbow that, that, that they funded. So Ireland was then uh, had to put up with having Jews in it. In 1256, there was another ritual sacrifice of the Shoe of Lincoln that, um, that they drained of his blood and, and crucified him. These are all documented. The, you know, the highest courts in the land dealt with these cases, and yet the Jews say that, that um, it was all hearsay. It wasn't hearsay because these people that have been accused of it are the king's property. Now, if anybody's going to get off for committing crimes, it's going to be people that are the king's property, and yet they were found guilty of these crimes. So the the population were... Uh, absolutely furious at this, and and by this time we, we've got Edward Longshanks, Edward the First, and he's from the the Norman line of kings. He's, he's from William uh, Norman, but he's he's a good one, and it's like the Anglo-Saxon kings. You know, they started off with uh, you know, some really treacherous, traitorous sorts, but um, after a while they actually became fairly decent, and and these Norman kings became fairly decent because Edward the First was a good king. He, he got rid of the Jews. And the the public and the people were so pleased that he had done that, that every one of them donated a penny. And they bought him a gift. They, they donated, donated a penny each to say, out of gratitude, for removing the Jews from the kingdom. It doesn't tell you that anywhere on uh, Wikipedia. It tells you that in the, in the Brute, the, the Chronicles of England that the people were so pleased with him that, he, that they did this. And there's, uh, there's another bit also that um, one of the uh, captains of the boats that were removing the Jews from England, he dropped them all off on an island and, and, and said, we're just going to stop here for a bit. And he, he dropped them out on an island, I think it was uh, 150 of them, something like that. And uh, then he got back in the boat and the tide came in and it drowned them all. And he went back and he was pretty pleased with himself that he'd done this. But the king didn't like the fact that he'd done that because he's, that was dishonourable. You know, he's expelling them anyway. They're kicking them out of the country. There's no need to mass 
murder, like 150 of them. And the guy was actually hung, hanged for that because he was behaving like a Jew. You know, you don't need to descend to their levels. You know, just massacring a load, of, a load of people when you're removing them from the country anyway. It's just, it's pointless. That was just vicious and, and vindictive. You know, it's an unnecessary act. That reminded me of um, the story in the Old Testament where I forget what it was, but I think somebody kills somebody for King David and they think they've done a really good thing and um, they didn't do a very good thing and uh, King David executes them for doing it. It might have been um, uh, executing King Saul or something. I'm not exactly sure on that. Can you remember the story that I'm thinking of, Bill? King David executing who? King David killed somebody who executed Saul. King David killed the um, the, the supposed armor bearer that killed Saul and his sons out of mercy because of their wounds or something similar to that effect. Yeah, it's right. It was dishonorable to sort of kill kill somebody. They killed the king, but this time it's people who are killing the Jews that, that were being removed from the country anyway. You know, they, they'd had, they were having their, their punishment. I'm so, the story that you're referring to. I'm sorry. That's why I think I think it's probably this. I think it's probably, I think it's probably the uh, the same one. And once once these Jews had, had been removed, there weren't any left in um, in England. Well, not not to speak of. There's none in Wales. And the only ones that were actually in England were at this place called the Domus Conversorum, which is where they put converted Jews. And these converted Jews had to go to this Domus Conversorum because they had to forfeit all their goods once they had converted. And then they had to be put to work. So they were put to hard work. And uh, in the years 1331 to 1608, there were only 48 of these um, converted Jews in there. So the, so the country was... Um, absolutely Jew-free for that time. But uh, that didn't mean that, that it was uh, trouble-free because once we'd actually had the Jews in the country and we'd seen uh, we'd been corrupted by them with their usury and uh, it had an effect on the country. And I think um, you've got, you could, you've got um, some more information on this from there, on this corruption that, that happened to the country, haven't you, Bill? I'm sorry, Sven. I'm distracted today. I um, I wanted to make one point a little earlier in what you said, and, and that was our first um, podcast in the series. Our first segment of this series was aimed at showing that every time that England was invaded, it was by treachery, but it was by treachery perpetrated by people who had interests on the continent, and, and and we see that that was um, true in the case of the Roman invasions, where the kings ha- had um, made allegiances with the Romans. Having those allegiances, they betrayed their own countries, and and that's the case in every single um, English invasion invasion of England that's successful it is, is that when England's invaded and taken over and its government is changed, it's always due to people who have allegiances on the continent 
and not with the English people. And, and that's also the case with William of Normandy. Even though he had a distant claim to the English throne, his allegiances were on a continent. And, and, and with, with, with the, um, the, the princes and, and the Jews that were on the continent. And, and he had no real care or allegiance for the English people. So he actually oppressed them. He oppressed the nobles seated, the, the English noblemen on the field at Hastings seated to his um, claim to the throne because their king was dead and his brothers were dead. So he acted, he, he acted treacherously against them afterwards and overturned the country because his allegiance was on the continent and, and with his own um, Norman nobles and princes so, and, and chieftains. It wasn't with um, the English people at all. And, and that's the case whenever, whenever England has been invaded, just like today. England's being invaded and overturned once again because they've made allegiance with the continent, with the EU. And, and we'll find it's the case with Cromwell. It's the case with William III. And it's the case with all of them. And I'm yeah, saying, one of the things. Oh. So one of the other things they did, or they, they prevented the Anglo-Saxons even speaking their Anglo-Saxon language. They changed the names of everything, took took the language away. And the Welsh talk about the the Anglo-Saxons doing that to them. And, and later on, you know, the, the Welsh weren't weren't allowed to speak their language until this century. But the Normans did it to the Anglo-Saxons. Right. In a way, you know, these things come around and go around. Like, like the Anglo-Saxons did it to the British, and the Normans then went and did it to to the Anglo-Saxons. The, da the Danes had a go at doing it as well. You know, sort of fighting, fighting amongst themselves, fighting amongst brothers. You know, they, they all sort of culminated in the in the Second World War, and the you know the destruction of, of all our greatest um, genetic stocks, basically. But our history has been a history of fighting amongst ourselves. One of the things people say, they say, well, why do you need the Bible? I don't need the Bible to tell me not to murder other people. Well, we do need the Bible to tell us to do that because that's what we've done over and over and over again. We, we've warred amongst, amongst our brothers. Because you, you're talking the same people here. You know, you, you, the early Britons are the same people as the Anglo-Saxons, same people as the Normans, and, and the same people as the, as the Danes. You right, know, it, it, Brothers' wars. Yeah. It, well, well, that's also the case with, with, with um, Cromwell. The Jews were able to um, set up Cromwell so that he could get back into England. He couldn't have done it without the financing that he obtained from Dutch Jews. And he repaid them by letting them back into the country. And he was able to do that because of the wars in England between the English Catholics and the English Protestants afforded him the ability to do that. I'm going to read a, 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 um, a couple of notes I have that, that give us a, a snapshot of England without Jews. And this is after the time of, of um, William of Normandy, unless you have more to say about him. No, I, I haven't got more to say about him. I, I was just sort of summing up to... Um, the uh, bit where Edward expelled the expelled the Jews, really, and then uh, Cromwell and and 
Charles the First and and uh, what you're going to talk about with the wars with the Catholics and the uh, and the Protestants at the time. Well, when the Jews were banished by Edward the First, Usury was banished with them, and I found this this excellent summary. So I didn't have to write one, right? I found this summary in a weird place. It was in a book of the parliamentary debates of the government of New Zealand for the year 1901. And one of the members of parliament made this summary where there was a debate over the permittance of pawn shops. And he said that the Anglo-Saxon laws against usury were also very severe. He, he had started off with the biblical arguments against usury. And he said that Edward the Confessor outlawed usurers and confiscated their property. And then 300 years later, Edward I took such stringent steps to put an end to what was considered a great evil that he hanged 280 Jews and banished another 15,000 in one year. In fact, the opposition of the Catholic and also the Reformed Church with regard to this matter was so strong that it was considered unchristian to take interest for money lent. And that's where you said, Sven, that the English people were so happy to be rid of the Jew usurers that they <laughs> made a gift to their king yeah. for getting rid of the Jews. Yeah, they all they all dropped in. They put this penny in to pay this gift. But there's something else then that went on at the time before he actually expelled them. They tried putting them to work. You know, they, they set them up with with um, farmsteads, put them on farms, tried to teach them how to uh, you know to use textiles, how to actually do these skillful things, the, the, to work with their hands. And they were incapable of doing it. They're incapable of working on farms. Incapable of, of working in any industry whatsoever. So they, you know, they they were literally incapable of, of doing anything, doing anything else. So they, either it was deliberately or not, I don't know. But they, they were incapable of it. So it was, you know, it was the last final straw. They couldn't put them to work doing anything else. You've got to kick them out of the country. You know, they're, they're just a drain. They're just a parasite. They're not capable of creating anything of any benefit to the nation that they that they live among. There was a, um, here in the United States and Canada, in the late 19th century, there was a back-to-the-land movement for Jews, and Jewish bankers had financed this in part. I believe that Bernard Baruch was one of them, if it wasn't Jacob Schiff, it was one or the other, and they had financed this to try to get Jews to, to have their own farms and agrarian industry, and it failed. It failed miserably. It, it failed in, it didn't even last to the 30s. It, it's not possible for, for, for Jews to subsist on their own without being parasites on other people. The consequence was the liberal interpretation was put on the Mosaic Law, to which I referred, and the business fell principally into the hands of the Jews because of the um, rejection of usury by the Christian churches at the time. 
and dollars. Speaker goes on to say that it was held that while a Jew might not take interest from a Jew, and he's misquoting the Old Testament because those people weren't really Jews, he was at liberty to get all he could from a stranger. Well, the 15,000 Jews were banished in one year, and no Jews were allowed to return to England until the time of Cromwell. That shows the view taken in England at that time in regard to the practice. It was left to Henry VIII to be the first to legalize usury in England, and he fixed the rate at 10%. But his son, Edward VI, a few years afterwards, repealed it. He did not believe in it. But when Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, came to the throne, she revived the statute of her father. James I reduced the rate of interest to 8%, Cromwell to 6 and Anne to 5 And since then, usury has continued to exist and flourish. Henry VIII was raising money for wars in Europe. Now, he and, and his, well, well, at least two fathers, Henry VII and, and his father too, were relying on benevolences and the taking of loans without intentions on paying them back in order to finance their wars on the continent. Benevolences were actually the extorting of free will offerings by the kings from their subjects. They would extort the landholders and, and others to give them money. So that that's uh, uh, benevolence is, is a um, a sarcastic term for the act. I'm going to read from the Social History of England from Volume Three, pages three forty eight and three forty nine. The Social History of England is a mainstream source, and it's very generally very favorable to Jews. So it's really quite um, neutral on the position of, of, of Jews. And in a lot of ways, it's totally blind. But that's okay. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly standard English history. This is on the transition from Henry VIII to Edward VI in 1547, where Edward VI was only 10 years old when he came to the throne, so he was under the care of, of, of governors. The incompetency and extravagance of the government aggravated the national misery. The expenses of Henry's court were four times as great in the last six months of his reign as they had been at the beginning. This was no doubt largely due to the rise in prices, but we shall see that this rise was caused in no small measure by the policy of the government. The royal debt was also a heavy burden, the rate of interest charged by the Flemish Jews being seldom less than 12%. That's important. You, you could, the book would let you just skim right over that and keep reading. They don't make a note of the gravity of that statement, but we'll keep reading for now. The death of Henry only increased the number of those whose extravagance had to be paid for by the nation. The leading members of Edward VI's council, because the boy was only 10 when he came to the throne, though differing on many points, agreed in regarding their trust as an opportunity 
enriching themselves. Their conduct was even more inexcusable than that of Henry himself, for they could see on every side the terrible results of the rapacity and extravagance of the late king's government. The chief cause, however, of the depression of trade and industry during the reigns of Edward VI and Mary was probably the continued debasement of the currency. Currency Henry VIII no doubt issued more base money than his ancestors, than his successors, I'm sorry, but Henry's debasements were mostly in the later years of his reign and did not produce their full consequences till it was almost ended. Edward's council was greedy and unscrupulous. Its members talked of reforming the currency, but their acts belied their words. They issued even baser coins than those of the previous reign. At this same time, as Henry VIII was... Um, what was debasing the currency, he was expanding trade into the Mediterranean and the Levant, and he was trading with the Turks and Arabs of the Levant, as well as the Jews of those regions. And the English merchants were plying the waves in ever-increasing numbers. This is a great expansion of English naval might in the 16th century. While Henry VIII was debasing the coin at home, and he was borrowing money from Flemish Jews at 12% or greater interest, all while the English sought more merchandise from abroad. And then Edward VI came, and things got even much worse. So there was a great, um, what we would call an economic depression in England, set off by these circumstances. And Our point is to show that removing the Jews from England first did not cure the English of the practices of the Jews in the time of Henry VIII. Because many Englishmen had begun to take to usury, attempting to replace the Jews with themselves as soon as Henry VIII once again made usury legal in England, and even without the legality, even without his making usury legal in England, taking loans from the Jews overseas and not having sovereignty over those Jews so that he could tax them like the earlier kings had done in the Norman period, they took loans from the Jews and, and pay them usury, but then they could just tax them and recover a great sum of the money. So Henry couldn't do that because he didn't have Jews, and he was taking loans from the Jews overseas, and, and that put the English kings at a great disadvantage. Seeking merchandise from overseas with a debased currency would make matters even worse unless the English merchants were restricted to trade and barter, which is how... Hitler had maintained trade without a Jewish usury bank. So while we can't do a full study of this period on, of English history, the problems which led to the English Civil War and the period under Cromwell 
really began with Henry VIII. Now, of course, because Henry VIII's debt and usury was necessitated by his wars on the continent, the problems really go back even further than that. But it was Henry VIII that once again legalized usury in England. And the legalization of usury in England basically opens the door for Cromwell to allow the Jews into the country once again. So Henry yeah, Bill, I believe, set you know, circumstances for Cromwell. Do you know that, that bill where, they, where he actually legalized usury, that was called the, the Bill for the Abolishing of Usury. And then he basically legalized usury. He called it the Bill for Abolishing it and, and actually legalized it, 10%. That's what they do in American politics today. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what they call something by a good name and make something bad out of it. They do it all the time. So we see that practice started at least with Henry VIII. I wasn't really familiar with that. Cromwell lets the Jews back into England. The authors of this social history of England, they recognized that there were Jews in England during the banishment in a footnote where they say that the fact that a few Jews, quote-unquote, are known to have lived in England during the 365 years between the formal expulsion of the race under Edward I and their formal readmission under Cromwell in 1655 has little bearing on our present subject, and they're just they're just lying because it has everything to do with the present subject. As they, well, Bill, I think Bill, I think that's I, I think that's talking about those ones that were in this. Um, what's his name? Uh, what's the Domus Conversarum? These, those were these Jews that were unable to do. You know, they they weren't able to work. They weren't able to do usury because they had supposedly converted to Christianity. So they were being put to work in this Domus Conversorum. But there's only 48 of them the whole time, but that's the only record we have of any Jews in England, but that's so in the space of um, 250 years, there was just 48 Jews on record in this Domus Compasaurus, so he could be referring to that there. It may be referring to them, but there were, according to um, other sources, and, and we will get to those before the end of this afternoon, I pray, that there were many Jews led into England in the 1640s that had later assisted Cromwell in, in the English Civil War and, and um, were a conduit for, for the Jews of Holland into London. So I think this... Um, I think that the, the writers of the social, the social history of England may only be downplaying what the Jews were actually able to accomplish at this time, especially in the years leading up to the English Civil War. It could be that they were ignorant to that or, or that they um, simply didn't realize the impact. I don't know. But yes, there were some Jews that supposedly converted and, and stayed in England during the, the period of banishment, but would they have been known as Jews? Would our writers of the social history of England recognize them as Jews if they were supposedly Christians? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. I was just saying, because that was all I could find. The only record of there actually being any was, was um, 
just just these ones. But they they uh, wouldn't have been in any position to be loaning out money. But the Jews that were in Holland were desperate to get back into England. Absolutely desperate to get back into England. They you know, they tried all the means they they possibly could to get back over here and find out with their with their links to Cromwell and and what happened with Cromwell. And we'll examine that through Captain Ramsey later on this afternoon. The um, the social history of England is very kind to the Jews, and it it, uh, it it's written from the typical um, mainstream perspective that the Jews are just people of another religion, and and um, who happen to make their money from usury because Christians couldn't. And other than that, they're just uh, an innocent race and and bystanders to history. None of that's true, but that's the way, and and I'll comment again on it later, that's the way most of our historians, most of the histories that we have, treat the subject. The social history says that the, the development of English commerce was no doubt assisted by the Jewish immigration. The permission to return given by Cromwell to this long-banished race may probably be connected with the general Judaic spirit of the Puritans, and we'll comment on that later. Oliver Cromwell himself said, Great is my sympathy with this poor people whom God chose and to whom he gave the law. And of course, Christ did not share that sympathy. And it was probably a similar sympathy which prevented any serious opposition to their readmission into England. London merchants indeed protested, but they were moved more by commercial jealousy than by religious intolerance. The Hebrew... Well, I have to say that with tongue-in-cheek. The Hebrew immigration at this time consisted almost entirely of Spanish and Portuguese Jews who had been driven from the land to their adoption by the persecution of the Inquisition. Their estates had, in many cases, been confiscated, but they were on the whole, nevertheless, a wealthy body. Most of them had, in the first instance, settled in Holland or in Italy, and in these countries, they have had ample opportunities of learning the newest and most perfect methods of conducting international trade and of giving and receiving credit. Many of them, in fact, came directly from Amsterdam, which was, by this time, the commercial capital of Holland. And I have another paragraph from this source, but sometimes I think that this was actually written as a public, as a an advance notice publicizing and, and advertising the benefits of Jews. They go on to say that Manasseh ben Israel, and that's not his real name, Manasseh ben Israel was one of those peninsular, meaning from Iberia, peninsular Jews who had settled in Amsterdam. He had distinguished himself as a teacher and as a student, but the confiscation of his paternal estates had driven him to abandon the pursuit of learning in favor of the career of a merchant and watchmaker. He then came over to England to intercede for the readmission of his co-religionists into the country. They make that sound so incidental. 
His interview with Cromwell and the Privy Council, in his interview, he laid great stress on the increase in English exports and imports, which the settlement of Jews in London would probably produce. He explained the importance of the exchange and banking transactions. They were now carrying on from Holland and showed that the large capital committed to their care by Spanish and Portuguese Jews, who thus hoped to save it from the Inquisition, enabled them to lend out money at what was then considered the extraordinarily low rate of 5%. These arguments must have been specially appreciated in a country whose merchants were at once envious of the low rate at which the Dutch rivals could borrow and desirous of extending their trade into all parts of the world. The Privy Council was divided on the subject, but the judges decided that the law did not prohibit Jews from living in England, and Cromwell then gave the required permission on his own authority. It was at once taken advantage of by a number of well-to-do merchants, and these were soon followed by poorer Jews from Holland and Poland. The first settlers do not seem to have accorded so friendly a welcome to their poorer brethren as the generally philanthropic character of the race might have led us to expect. Yes, yeah. uh, social history is incredibly friendly to the Jews, right? <laughs> Charles II was appealed to on his restoration to reverse the policy of Cromwell, but the merry monarch was too shrewd not to see that the presence of the Jews in England was stimulating English commerce. Moreover, he had himself is the real truth, right? He had himself, during his exile, borrowed largely from Dutch Jews, and he not only continued to tolerate their presence, but allowed them to open a synagogue in London in 1662. That's only seven years after they were readmitted. This so-called Manasseh ben Israel, his real name was Manuel Diaz Soiro, he was Portuguese. He was a Portuguese Jew. But Jews in public like to take Hebrew names so as to give the appearance that they were actually Israelites and not liars. He was a Portuguese rabbi, a Kabbalist, a writer, a printer, and a publisher who supposedly founded the first Jewish printing press in Amsterdam in 1626. The just as evil Baruch Spinoza was one of his students. He wrote that the Indians of the Andes in South America were the descendants of the lost, the so-called lost tribes of Israel, which is another incredible Jewish lie, and, and the same idea was somehow picked up later on by the Mormons. What the social history of England glosses over is that this Jew did not just come over to England 
as they say, but rather he was invited to England specifically by Cromwell to speak at the Whitehall Conference debating the readmission of the Jews to England in December of 1655. And it really wasn't a debate. It was really a sales pitch on the part of Cromwell to the, the English nobles, and, and the lawyers had accepted it, whereas a lot of the merchants and, and, and the landed classes and the farmers, the agrarians, were against it. The clergy was against it. Cromwell cut that council short so that he could force through his position, being the quote-unquote Lord Protector since 1653. After 1655, Cromwell granted this Jew, this so-called Manasseh ben Israel, he granted him a pension at the expense of the English people. Fortunately, the Jew did not live to collect it. But I had the, the feeling, I can't prove it, I had the feeling that this was only the manner in which Cromwell was paying the Jew back for connecting him to the Jewish moneylenders in Holland, as we shall see. First, I have a few notes on religion. Cromwell was a Puritan, and all that Puritans really stood for was the idea that the reforms of the Church of England under Elizabeth I did not go far enough in removing Roman Catholic practices and doctrines from the church liturgy. There were two types of Puritans, the separatists, who sought to establish their own church, knowing they could never reform the Church of England, and those who would seek to continue, continue to change the Church of England. Both types were among the New England colonists of this same period. Before the rebellion of Cromwell and, and the English Civil War, there were actually many attempts to revise the English Common Prayer Book and the Anglican Church, which never managed to satisfy both the Anglican and the Puritan. So the Puritans were a powerful force in England during this time, and even before Cromwell. Because of this study, let, let me say, and, and this is sort of an editorial, because the study of the Bible and biblical history had been more or less superintended by Jews ever since the persecutions of the Christians over three centuries after Christ had destroyed early Christian scholarship. And a lot of people think that these writings that we have surviving of, of these universalists like Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, because they're from the second century, that that is early Christian scholarship, those people are deceived because the Jews for 300 years did everything they could do to stamp out early Christian scholarship. And what we have left in Clement of Alexandria and in Irenaeus and certain other writers is what the Jews found acceptable, so they left it alone. That's something that Christian scholars just don't get. These early Christian writers, Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, Origen, Eusebius, they do not follow the apostles of Christ. They 
stand in conflict, the universal Catholic Church that the Jews stopped persecuting so it became acceptable stands in conflict to the teachings of Christ, the Old Testament, and the Apostles. Ever since the, the legalizing of Christianity, Conversal Jews were at the fore of Roman Catholic Bible scholarship in Europe. For several centuries, Jews have superintended Christian scholarship ever since the third century, the second century, when they persecuted real Christian scholarship out of existence. And because of that, the Protestants of the Reformation especially even Martin Luther, who admits it, they get most of their understanding of the Christian Bible from Jews. And they never disputed the errant claim that the people known as the Jews were the Israelites of the Bible. The Jews capitalize on this great lie of history throughout the medieval period, and they continue to capitalize it on it on it today. They benefit twofold because they can act like the Antichrist that they are, while at the same time they successfully pose as God's chosen people. So Christians perceive that the devil is a messenger of light, just as Paul of Tarsus had warned. Martin Luther was never able to correct his position on the Jews from an academic standpoint. Yet he caught on to their treachery and advised, before he died, that they should be banished from Christendom, that all their property should be taken away, that their books should be burned. Apparently, Martin Luther's late writings never made it beyond the borders of Germany before the Jews were entrenched everywhere. But this is the problem in truly assessing what was going on at this time, how the Jews were successful into this, in, in, in this inroad into England. All of the histories that we have of these troublous times are centered around the religious disputes of Catholics and Protestants. And the Jews took advantage of the religious disputes between Catholics and Protestants to use Cromwell so that they could get back into England. And because the histories are centered around the religious disputes, there is little concern by the historians for the Jews and their motivations. Therefore, the Jews are viewed by most historians, and we see that clearly in, in this um, social history of England. The Jews are viewed as innocent bystanders, innocent third parties in the wars between Christians, when in reality, the money lending of the Jews both enabled and decided the wars among Christians. From this point, it is difficult not to turn to Jewish histories for more information on Jews of the period. 
So for the next part of this, I would like to quote from um, The Nameless War by Captain A.H.M. Ramsey, who himself was forced to resort to Jewish sources to put together the, 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 an alternate history of Cromwell, which more accurately depicts his reliance on the Jewish bankers in, in Holland to do the things which he did. Sven, do you have any comments? Well, most of what I've got here is uh, I've got stuff on Charles I, and, and this with um, the Jews and Manasseh and Israel's letter, this all came after Cromwell had executed the king, basically, the rightful king. So I think the king, Charles I, I think he was a good king. I think he could see that this was that this was coming. You know, I mean, he, he could see that democracy was arriving and that he was no longer going to be able to govern according to his conscience and under the law of God, but he was going to be told what to do by the parliament. He suspected that this was going on. He, he went into the parliament to try and arrest um, two of the politicians for uh, treason against him. And uh, this, this is what caused them all to gang up on him and to have this kangaroo court where they executed him. And when they, when they had this... Um, court the, they wouldn't allow anybody in that supported him and, they, and in the in the um parliament they wouldn't allow anyone in that, that supported the king and at the time england was the least taxed country in europe it was it was the le least taxed country in europe so i don't think he was he was a bad king at all you're only taxed if you earn 40 pounds a year or more and yet um you know the the establishment today teaches that he was a bad king and uh Cromwell was the good guy because he was instituting, you know, the rule of the mob, basically, the rule of the masses, democracy. And, and Cromwell himself, he put himself across as if he was, he was the man of the people. But he wasn't a man of the people. I mean, he, his money, his, the money that his family had, he was born into a lot of money, and that came from stealing from the monasteries. It came from the destruction of the monasteries and stealing all their goods. So he was landed gentry anyway, but who tried to make out that he was, uh, you know, a hero of the masses. Trotsky um, thought he was a hero. He called him a class revolutionary, you know, later on. He was a, he was a complete hypocrite. You know, he, uh, killing the king, this regicide, it, it wasn't long after, after that, after he died, that they dug him up and cut him up into pieces and stuck his head on a, on a spike. You know, above the parliament, and he did all this by by um, pretending that he was, you know, he was Christian and that he was, he was instituting the laws of God. But the law of God was was um, kingship to be in charge. It was, it was royalty. It was a monarchy. That uh, that was the, what um, God institutes in the Old Testament. And that was what King Charles um, appealed to. He said, "Under what law are you judged by?" You know, I, I obey the, the, the law of God. I'm under the law of God, not under the law of man. You, you know, you're just making making things up. It's what he said to the people that uh, that had this had this kangaroo court. And they, when when they actually executed him, he, he, the king defended the laws of the kingdom from the usurpers. So I must tell you that that their liberty and freedom consists in having government. It is not in their having a share in government. 
that is nothing appertaining unto them. A subject and a sovereign are two clean different things, which is the complete opposite of um, democracy, which is the, the rule of the mob, which is the, uh, the least um, educated people, the least qualified people running things. So I think King Charles I was, was a good guy, he, and he had the support of the um, of the, the working classes, as it were. It was only these lords that, that didn't have, that didn't support him. And he, he went in and grabbed the money from the City of London. So I think you can see that the City of London was, was taking the power, was taking the power away from the king. And you need to have somebody at the top with absolute power, like Adolf Hitler had absolute power and, and absolute responsibility. What Hitler was doing was instituting the old rule of kinship, but going to the most um, the most qualified person rather than uh, going by heredity, by going to to the most qualified person. And and if Hitler had carried on living, he would have nominated um, the person who was to succeed him. That's that's the way things should be, because he would be the, he would be the one that would know who was most likely to be best out of. Um, out of his parliament and most capable of supporting him. And it was the same with the kings. They would say which one of their sons um, was going to be the, the, the best to, to replace them. And then you would have like the Witten, a group of the advisors uh, after the king had died, and, and they would bear the king's wishes in mind, and, and they would add their bit to it as well, and they would decide which one. But it would be from that that royal line. It would be from people that had been trained to, to be kings and to rule. And Cromwell wasn't trained to be king or to rule. He was just this, this upstart. And once he had killed the king, you know, the, the things that he, that he went on to do, he invaded Ireland. 3,500 massacred in one town. After capturing it, he massacred them. That was in Drogheda. 2,000 troops, 1,500 civilians massacred while trying to surrender at the siege of Rexford, burned the town down. And, and none of the people that did this were, were disciplined or, or even reprimanded. 50,000 men, women and children sent as slaves to Bermuda and Barbados. He, you know, he ended up invading Scotland as well because Scotland was supporting Charles II, who, who you mentioned earlier that when he came back, because he, had, he went off to Holland and, uh, and then took money from these Jews, Charles the Charles the Second did, but you, you know you can't really. It must have been pretty annoyed at what they'd done. I mean, to to execute the king, regicide, and that is a really serious, serious, serious crime to do. And, and finally, what Cromwell did, he invades Parliament himself with forty musketeers and clears the chamber by force with forty musketeers, and he executed King Charles for going into the chamber to legally arrest two members of parliament. So he, you know, by the end of, of his sort of, it's not reign of terror, I suppose you could call it, by the end of that, he was, he was breaking the, you know, the, the same etiquette as all it was, you know, the king going to the chamber, but for him to go in there to arrest people and remove them by force, you know, that's just total, total hypocrisy. You know, and then he, then he wanted a parliament called the Sanhedrin of Saints, Desperate to bring the Jews back in, he was. He's desperate to bring them back in, and then you get to that to this to the to the letter that we were that we we're on about, and that sort of bring, brings us up to here. I just wanted to add, add some background to to um, to Cromwell and how he got into how he actually got into power. If you don't you know know that much about British history, you might think he was a king or something like that. 
He was a wannabe king. He, he, was, he, was a, he was a Bolshevik. He was a, pretending to be of the working class when he was brought up, you know, with all this stolen money from the monasteries, basically. If you look back at, at, at history and the way it's been written for the last four or five hundred years, and, and you look back at the, um, the figures that history, the history books um, most loudly extol and magnify, you'll find that every one of them has been a, not every one of them, but most of them have been treacherous bastards doing the work of the usurers. And that's true of Julius Caesar. They talk so um, highly of Julius Caesar, but he destroyed the old Roman Republic and turned it into an, an imperium. Um, tried to set himself up as emperor. He was pulling a Cromwell on the old Roman Republic. If you look at, um, they extol William of Normandy. They, they make him into William the Conqueror and a great hero, and he was only doing the work of the usurers. That they extol Oliver Cromwell. They extol Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather is another figure. Like Cromwell, he was a Puritan. He allowed the usurers into New England. Cotton Mather did that, and he campaigned in in the um, with all of his co-religionists to accept usury in New England. So usury became acceptable in New England because of Cotton Mather, and he was actually a what well, well a cruel bastard that that allowed innocent young girls to be burned at the stake as witches. But, he, but he's considered a great hero, and he's um, written about in a positive light in so many history books, and, and is re that's really a, a reward, uh, in my opinion, because he allowed usury. So it's a lot of um, there's a lot of there are many historical figures who are actually extolled. In, in our history books, who should be condemned in our history books, and Oliver Cromwell is certainly one of them. It comes from the, the Jews, you know, right, holding the publishing houses and, and having so much influence on the on the history that is taught. I think it's interesting this this um, between the Protestants or the Puritans and and the Catholics because. Charles I that, that they got rid of, I mean, he, he had this religious tolerance thing. He was going to allow the two religions to exist side by side, and he was Catholic. But, you know, they didn't want him. They wanted to get, get rid of him. And there was this big problems between the, the Catholics and the um, Protestants at this time. And I think Charles II, the, the second one, he, uh, he wanted to allow there to be uh, the two religions to exist side by side, but they... The parliaments and the people that were in charge didn't want that. The Jews basically didn't want that. They wanted um, the, the Protestants to, to to be running things. But I'm just sort of jumping ahead of us a bit there because that's that's what happened with um, William of Orange. They, they made this this law that there could never be a, a Catholic king ever again in in Britain. So there was, there was very anti-Catholic by this time, and Catholicism really had only come in with. Um, 
William Norman. That was really that was the only, that was the actual start of the Roman Catholic Church. Was ten years before uh, William the Norman invaded. That there was a big schism, and you and you, then you had the Eastern Orthodox Church, and you had the Roman Catholic Church. So it was up to that point you had a united church. So you know it wasn't just the, uh, William the Norman invading Britain in 1066. You also had the church self-destructing at that time. It had been coming for quite a while, you know, probably from about the sixth century. It had been heading towards that, you know. But it, but it, that self-destructed as well. So you had, you know, these really sort of, you know, life-changing events that, that happened from that from that point on. You know, I really think you can make a division between the first millennium and the second millennium, and what went on. The first millennium was. You know the traitors among ourselves, and they're few and far between. And the second millennium, you've then got this alien force, the, the Jews, and then you've got people being infected by the Jews, corrupted by them, working for them, Cons- uh, even when the Jews aren't there doing the same as them. Consistently from the from, from the um, beginning of the second millennium, absolutely. The um. That that all started when when Charlemagne let them into the empire. I'd like to quote from A. H. Ramsey and and see what um he says about Oliver Cromwell, even though at times he was forced to rely on Jewish sources. And and he sort of starts with Edward I, and he says that Edward I banished the Jews from England for many grave offenses and endangering the welfare of his realm and lieges which were to a great extent indicated in the statutes of Jewry enacted by his parliament in 1290, the commons playing a prominent part. The king of France very shortly followed suit, as did other rulers in Christian Europe. So grave did the situation for the Jews in Europe become that an urgent appeal for help and advice was addressed to them by them to the Sanhedrin, then located at Constantinople. This appeal was sent over the signature of Temor, rabbi of Arles in Provence, on the 13th of January, 1489. The reply came in November, which was issued over the signature of VSSVFF, just initials, right? Prince of the Jews. It advised the Jews of Europe to adopt the tactics of the Trojan horse to make their sons Christian priests, lawyers, doctors, etc., and work to destroy the Christian structure from within. The first notable repercussion to this advice occurred in Spain in the reign of Ferdinand and Isabella. Many Jews were by then enrolled as Christians, but remaining secretly Jews were working to destroy the Christian church in Spain. Now, I've actually read... Um, corroboration of, of this as being an a, an a plan on the part of the Jew, on, on the part of the Jews in several medieval Jewish sources. So grave became the menace finally that the Inquisition was instituted in an endeavor to cleanse the country from these conspirators. Once again, the Jews were compelled to commence an exodus from yet another country whose hospitality they had abused. Trekking eastwards, these Jews joined other Jewish communities in Western Europe. Considerable numbers flowed on to Holland and Switzerland. 
From now on, these two countries would have become active centers of Jewish intrigue. Jewry, however, has always needed a powerful seafaring nation in which to attach itself. And Spain and Portugal were the other two powerful seafaring nations at the time, right? Besides France and Britain. Great Britain, newly united under James I, was a rising naval power, which was already beginning to sway the four corners of the discovered world. Here also there existed a wonderful field for disruptive criticism, for although it was a Christian kingdom, yet it was one most sharply divided as between Protestant and Catholic. A campaign for exploiting this division and fanning hatreds between the Christian communities was soon in the process of organization. How well the Jews succeeded in this campaign in Britain may be judged from the fact that one of the earliest acts of their creature and hireling, Oliver Cromwell, after executing the king according to plan, was to allow the Jews free access to England once more. This opposition faction, Ramsey goes on to say later, became steadily more hostile to Charles, and by the time that they were led by Pym and decided to impeach Stratford, the king, writes Disraeli, regarded this faction as his enemies, and he states that the head of this faction was the Earl of Bedford and that Walsh, the eminent Catholic historian, states that a Jew wine merchant named Roussel was the founder of this family in Tudor times, which goes all the way back before Henry VIII, right? The um, Disraeli that Ramsey is quoting here is actually um, Isaac Disraeli, the father of the later British prime minister, who was a Jewish historian. With the impeachment and execution of Stratford, the powers behind the rising Calvinist or Cohenist conspiracy began to reveal themselves and their focus, the city of London. At this time, there suddenly began to appear from the city armed mobs of operatives, the medieval equivalent for workers, no doubt, taking a stab at the modern Bolshevism. And he says, let me quote Disraeli. They were said to amount to 10,000 with warlike weapons. It was a militia for insurgency at all seasons and might be depended upon for any work of destruction at the cheapest rate. As these sallied forth with daggers and bludgeons from the city, the inference is obvious that the train of explosion must have been long laid. In other words, this was a um, long-running plot to have these disruptions in London. It must, be indeed, it must indeed, and we must recollect here, that at this time Stratford was still unexecuted, and civil war in the minds of none but those behind the scenes, who evidently had long since resolved upon and planned it. These armed mobs of workers intimidated all and sundry, including both houses of Parliament and the palace, at critical moments, exactly on the model employed later by the sacred bands and the Marseille in the French Revolution. 
Isaac Disraeli draws again and again startling parallels between this and the French Revolution, notably in his passages on the press, no longer under restraint, and the deluge of revolutionary pamphlets and leaflets. From 1640 to 1660, he writes, about 30,000 appear to have started up. And later, the collection of French revolutionary pamphlets now stands by the side of the French tracts of the age of Charles I as abundant in number and as fierce in passion. He goes on, whose hand behind the curtain played the strings could post up a correct list of 59 commoners branding them with the odious title of Stratfordians or betrayers of their country, whose hand indeed, but Disraeli, who knew so much, now discreetly draws a veil over that iron curtain and is left, and it is left to us to complete the revelation. To do this, we must turn to other such works, such as the Jewish Encyclopedia, Sombart's work, The Jews and Modern Capitalism, and others. From these, we learn that Cromwell, the chief figure of the revolution, was in close contact with the powerful Jew financiers in Holland, and was in fact paid large sums of money by Manasseh ben Israel, the Portuguese Jew rabbi who we used to talk to the, um, to the nobility and, and, and the clergy at the White House conference. Whilst Fernandez Carvajal, the great Jew, as he was called, was the chief contractor of the new model army. In The Jews in England, we read, 1643 brought a large contingent of Jews to England. Their rallying point was the house of the Portuguese ambassador de Souza, a Morano Jew. Prominent among them was Fernandez Carvajal, the great financier and army contractor. In January of the previous year, the attempted arrest of the five members had set in violent motion the armed gangs of operatives already mentioned from the city. Revolutionary pamphlets were broadcast on this occasion, as Disraeli tells us, bearing the ominous insurrectionary cry of, To your tents, O Israel! Shortly after this, the king and the royal family left the palace of Whitehall. The five members, with armed mobs and banners accompanying them, were given a triumphal return to Westminster. The stage was now set for the advent of Carvajal and his Jews, and the rise of their creature, Cromwell. The scene now changes. The Civil War has taken its course. The year is 1647. Naseby has been won and lost. The king is a virtual prisoner, while treated as an honored guest at Holmby House. According to a letter published in plain English on September 3, 1921, the learned elders had been in existence for a much longer period than they had perhaps suspected. My friend, Mr. L.D. Van Valkert of Amsterdam, has recently sent me a letter containing two extracts from the synagogue at Moheim. The volume in which they are contained was lost at some period during the Napoleonic Wars and has recently come into Mr. Van Valkert's possession. It is written in German and contains 
extracts of letters sent and received by authorities of the Moheim Synagogue. The first entry he sends me is, is, is of a letter received from Oliver Cromwell by Ebenezer Pratt. In return for financial support, will advocate admission of Jews to England. This, however, is impossible while Charles is living. Charles cannot be executed without a trial, adequate grounds for which do not at present exist. Therefore, advise that Charles be assassinated, but will have nothing to do with arrangements for procuring an assassin, though willing to help in his escape. In reply, the dispatch was dispatched the following to Oliver Cromwell by Ebenezer Pratt, July 12, 1647. Will grant financial aid as soon as Charles is removed and the Jews admitted. Assassination is too dangerous. Charles shall be given opportunity to escape. His recapture will make trial and execution possible. The support will be liberal but useless to discuss terms until trial commences. Plain English was a weekly review published by the North British Publishing Company and edited by the late Lord Alfred Douglas. With this information now at our disposal, the subsequent moves on a part of the regicides stand out with a new clearness. On June 4, 1647, Cornet Joyce, acting on secret orders from Cromwell himself and according to Isaac Disraeli, unknown to the General-in-Chief Fairfax, descended upon Holmby House with 500 picked revolutionary troopers and seized the king. According to Disraeli, the plan was arranged on May 30th at a secret meeting held in Cromwell's house, though later Cromwell pretending that it was without his concurrence. This move coincided with the sudden development in the army, the rise of the levelers and rationalists. Their doctrines were those of the French revolutionaries, in fact, what we know today as communism. These were the regicides, the king murderers, who four times purged parliament till there was finally left 50 members, communists like themselves, later known as the rump the Rump Parliament, before Cromwell became Lord Protector. To return to the letter from the Moheim Synagogue of the 12th of June, 1647, and its cunning suggestion that attempted escape should be used as a pretext for execution, just such an event took place on November 12th of that year. Hollis and Ludlow considered a flight as a stratagem of Cromwell's. Isaac Disraeli states, Contemporary historians have decided that the king, from the day of his deportation from Holmby to his escape to the Isle of Wight, was throughout the dupe of Cromwell. Little more remains to be said. Cromwell had carried out the orders from the synagogue, and now it only remained to stage a mock trial. Maneuvering for position continued for some time, and it became apparent that the House of Commons, even in their partially purged condition, were in favor of coming to an agreement with the king. On December 5th, 1648, the House sat all night and finally carried the question that the king's concessions were satisfactory to a settlement. Should such agreement have been reached, of course, Cromwell would not have received the large sums of money which he was hoping to get from the Jews. He struck again. On the night of December 6th, 
eternal pride on his instructions carried out the last and most famous purge of the House of Commons, known as Pride's Purge. On January 4th, the communist remnant of 50 members, the rump, invested themselves with supreme authority. This leads right to the next figure we should discuss, and, and that is um, just a couple of generations later, or really just a generation later, and that's William III. I'm afraid we won't have time to do that today, but maybe you have some additional comments on Oliver Cromwell. It, it's um, A.H. Ramsey's information. It is fragmentary, but certainly does lead to the conclusion that we should understand is an obvious conclusion that Oliver Cromwell was financed by the Jews of Holland with the intent of getting the Jews back into England. Yeah, it says there that um, what was standing in their way was Charles I. This this king that we're told was a bad guy, the the one that um, they executed. It says in the quotes that you just you just said there that um, it was Charles I that was standing in the way of them actually getting back into Britain, because this Manasseh ben Israel's letter, and that, just that name itself is funny. Ben means son, so he's saying Manasseh, son of Israel. Obviously, Manasseh was one of the sons of Jacob Israel. It's not very subtle, is it? You know, a way of pretending to be um, Israelite. The name well, well, right. Ben Israel. Especially since even Wikipedia supplies his original Portuguese name. So, so it's like Manasseh ben Israel is a stage name that these Jews use to promote their lie. His real name was Manuel Diaz Soyero, and, and he, he's a Portuguese Jew. He sure as hell is no Israelite. Well, in his letter, he talks about um, Ferdinand and Isabella as well, and, and um, he says that uh, you know, us, well, us poor Jews can't help it if, if the Christians like our laws and want to become Jews like ourselves. And so he turns it around. Uh, not that the Jews were corrupting, you know, the Christians with their corrupting ways, but the, the Christians wanted to be more like the Jews. And, it, and in the letter, he makes out that. Um, they are so faithful to the nations that they live amongst, and, and they make the nations so prosperous. If they made the nations prosperous, then, then why were they so desperate to kick them out all the time? I mean, eventually, you know, Cromwell wasn't quite able to get them in straight away, but they, they did eventually get back in again. But there were still, um, still problems for them. Yeah, in 16, it wasn't until 1657 that they finally managed to get into the city of London. And this was done without a Christian oath. See, what, what they managed to do was get the oaths taken out of it, these Christian oaths, because right the way through British society, um, you had to take oaths to, to stick to Christian laws. Because if you allow a Jew in there, he does, you know, he's basically saying, I'm not going to follow the Christian laws. I'm, I'm going to follow you know, his Jewish law, which is rip off the Gentiles, rip off the, the Goyim. So they, you know, they, they, they managed to get into the city of London in, in 1657. And uh, Charles II was assisted by the Jews, as we were saying. Uh, Charles II escaped to Holland, and uh, he was funded by the Jews there. 
And then when he came back after Cromwell died, Charles II came back, and he was eventually put back on the throne. As I say, uh, Cromwell was dug up, and his um, remains were desecrated, and he was put up as a traitor on uh, on a spike for years. And eventually, um, a storm blew his head down off this spike, and uh, it landed in the road, and a final ignominy for him. But one of the, one of the surprising things is, is by in, in 1684, the East India Company were calling the Jews alien infidels and perpetual enemies of the British crown. So this must have been before the East India Company got taken over by them. You've got one Jew um, first getting into the city of London in 1657, and it must have only been 50 or 60 years before they'd managed to take over the city of London, to be honest. You've got the East India Company, 1684, and you, by... Um, you know, the, by the 18, 1800s, you've got um, the Sassoons and you've got the Opium Wars, and they're running the East India um, Company. So, in the space of what, 17, in space of 150 years, they've managed to take over this East India Company that was calling them alien infidels and perpetual enemies. And it was the it was the descendant of Charles II, who who was uh, Catholic. That was the one, the, the rightful would have been the rightful king, but uh, the Jews wanted to put William of Orange on the throne. So there was lots of machinations to, to put him on the throne. I think we're going to um, look at that ne- next week, I think, aren't we, Bill? William of Orange and the, and the Bank of England. Now, that's when we get to the uh, Bank of England being started up. Because that's what this, this plan was all about, was moving the centre of finance from Holland and bring it to Britain. And from then on, it obviously became the centre of worldwide use to ever since, and the means that they've they've used to um, take over the pretty much the rest of the world, basically, by getting everyone into debt to them. And we will pick up with that in two weeks. Excellent, Sam. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bill. Pray shall we. We will see you in two weeks. And hopefully by then, we, we, we had hoped to get to William III today. And I know it just wasn't possible to do right. So we will discuss William of Orange next week. Pray shall we. And good night.